Hello, and welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Today's guest is Chris Fregley. Chris Fregley's been on the show before. He's an excellent engineer. In the last episode that he came on, it was probably four years ago, and he had been doing machine learning at Netflix. He'd been doing data infrastructure at Netflix. And Chris's experience at Netflix led him to write this article about the pancake stack, or I think it was also a presentation that he gave at several tech conferences. And the idea of the pancake stack was something like, for like Presto, Apache Spark, basically pancake stack was an acronym. So if you count the number of letters in the words pancake stack, it's, I think it's 12. And if you think about like a 12-letter acronym, that means there's 12 different technologies involved in the stack. And the whole impetus of that show was the idea that the pancake stack is this very long acronym that basically represents a gigantic field that is known as data engineering. And so data engineering four or five years ago was even more nascent than it is today. So data engineering is very immature today, but it's getting better. And so what does data engineering look like in AWS? That's one of the questions of today's show. Although I think it's kind of a behind-the-scenes question because we don't really talk about data engineering. I think what's important to note is that if you're on AWS, you have an opinionated data engineering stack, and it integrates well. So arguably, going with AWS, going all in on AWS for data science or for machine learning is quite a compelling environment because it's so opinionated, because you have this full suite of of data engineering tools that are integrated well. Now, once you have that, it makes the whole data cleaning and data architecture process much easier, which allows you to do a whole lot more with machine learning. So if you have more time to spend on machine learning, you will get better results. Machine learning is this highly iterative process. It's kind of a dogfight. You're kind of wrestling with your data. And so if the data infrastructure gets out of your way, if the pancake stack gets out of your way, you have a huge advantage. And that's the compelling advantage. That's the compelling motivation that Chris Fregley is making this episode in his vision for data science on AWS. Data Science on AWS is a book that Chris Fregley wrote with Antia Barth. We're trying to have her on the show as well. It's a book that's like a comprehensive book about data science. It's an O'Reilly book, very reputable. And I'm really thrilled to talk to Chris Fregley once again. He's one of the foremost people in applied data engineering and applied machine learning. He does lots of stuff for AWS. He's sort of like a guy that moves between teams and and produces content and produces new product ideas. And I think he's just kind of an internal entrepreneur within AWS. So I love talking to Chris. He's fantastic. I can't wait to have him on the show once again. And I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Chris, welcome back to the show. Yeah. Hey, Jeff. It's been a few years, huh? It has been too long. You are one of the foremost authorities on making complex production data engineering systems work. And you've taken that to a, well, I guess what what most people call machine learning today. I think machine learning is in many cases kind of a higher level version of data engineering or actually how how would you define that how would you define where are the lines between machine learning and data engineering yeah so you certainly need data engineering to build your models so you can't really do one without the other i would say once you start to really apply math and start to derive your like insights i think is you know really because you can do your queries and, and sort of get 
kind of summary statistics, but when you really need to get some of the advanced analytics and more like predictive models, that's where you start to use machine learning. If we think about the world of machine learning from the standpoint of AWS, AWS at this point has a finely honed sense of building products in a way that will be appealing to developers what is the AWS perspective on how you build infrastructure as a service for machine learning? Yeah. So as you know, right, like AWS is very much about building the like building blocks, right? And as we hear from customers more and more sort of higher level solutions, right? So they don't just want a feature store. They don't want these separate pieces. So in December 2020, for reInvent 2020, there were lots of new features that came out, and really the entire pipeline came together in December 2020. So that was super exciting. And in fact, like we were writing the book, me and my co-author Ancha Barth were writing the book, and we actually had to pause because we knew about all the things coming out for reInvent. We had to wait for all those because we couldn't launch a book that didn't have you know full end-to-end pipeline. If I think about the companies I know that do machine learning, I mean, a lot of them are are running on AWS, but I would not consider them all in on AWS from a data engineering perspective. Like if they're using Databricks or if they're using Spark, they're probably using Databricks. If they're using Kafka, maybe they're using Confluent. If they've been doing machine learning for a while, they might be running their own TensorFlow stuff, or maybe they're running TensorFlow on GCP since... GCP probably has better TensorFlow support. Maybe you can correct me there. So it seems like the most machine learning companies that I have encountered, at least, you, you know, please let me know if, if, uh, if you have any counterexamples, like the people that go all in on AWS for machine learning and what they get. But I'd like to get your perspective on the heterogeneity. Like if I take a heterogeneous approach, I'm, I'm not AWS specific. How am I selecting tools? What is my process or how has my tool chain come together? So, you know, one of the things, so coming into AWS, I had a uh, startup before uh, called Pipeline AI, where we were very much, you know, like multi-cloud, you know, we were hybrid cloud, we were all Kubernetes based, we started to migrate to Kubeflow. What I realized in that startup was like pretty much all of my customers, even TensorFlow and PyTorch, were all using AWS. And so... So I had started that company a few months before SageMaker was launched. And so I've been tracking SageMaker for those previous few years. You know, this is five years ago now. But um, I think what you're getting at is, you know, we're not uh, like necessarily known for having the complete like life cycle and the ability to, you know, take your models from raw data and then deploy them. And that really did change in December. And I had caught wind of that. And that was one of the reasons I had joined AWS. And like pretty much all my customers from like Pipeline AI were using AWS. Even if you're using Databricks, by the way, you still have to choose your cloud provider, right? And so you're either using AWS and you know getting your data from S3. You can also choose uh, like Google if you are in uh, like Google Cloud or like Azure, of course. And... Same with like Confluent as well too, right? You still need to pick which cloud if you're using like Elastic 
cloud, there's still a choice of cloud. And typically you're choosing based on where your data is and trying to minimize transfer of data. I actually just got off a, a call with the Snowflake folks and they're a you know very keen partner with AWS. And you know, one of the things we we're talking about is how to make that transition smooth, right? How to get data in and out from like EMR, from SageMaker. And yeah, we've been working very, very closely with them. On the uh, sort of open source side, you know, we call it the ML on containers. So with like EKS, Amazon EKS, the Elastic Kubernetes service, yes, we certainly support Kubeflow. I actually had a blog post last year that was highlighting, I think it was the Kubeflow 1.1 uh, release and all the ways that like Amazon supports Kubeflow and security and, and yes, all that. You mentioned Snowflake there. Snowflake really has shown the potential of a focused vertical approach to infrastructure, basically taking a domain that Amazon AWS has, has validated and going all in on it. And going all in on it to such an extent that, from my point of view, they kind of have shaped the market. They've kind of said, hey, you know, you can do this thing where you're like the pancake stack, you know, <laughs> which we explored a couple of years ago where it's like, okay, the whole idea of the pancake stack, which was hilarious, why I like that episode so much, was it's really not about what is in the pancake stack. It's the idea that this acronym is so long that it has seven letters. There's seven <laughs> things in the pancake stack. And there's actually more things in the pancake stack. And because it's a stack of pancakes, you can have as many pancakes as you want. There's as many things in the stack as you want. Basically, the idea is data engineering is confusing and terrible. And Snowflake, from my point of view, I'd love to hear your narrative on this. Snowflake says, no, 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 no. You don't want any of that. You're going to put it all in the data warehouse, and then you're going to do whatever you want on top of that data warehouse. Yeah, the Snowflake guys really lean into security, governance, you know, row-based uh, security, column-based security. They even have differential privacy built in. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a very interesting observation. And, you know, coming from Databricks, that was similar to Databricks as well, too, where, you know, they previously were were known as the Spark-like uh, company. This is Databricks. And now they're more uh, sort of Spark and AI data and then with Snowflake, it was interesting to see how much they rely on, on partners for machine learning. So Snowflake very much still is just a data company. And the ability to you know, run SQL queries is really their sweet spot and have really, really tight security. By default, everything is locked down. Yeah, and so I think what you're getting at, uh, Jeff, is you know there's one approach where you can go build everything yourself, right? And like a lot of us, you know, start off that way. And yes, yeah, so I remember working the the Databricks booth uh, many years ago, and you know this is right when when Spark came out, or when like Databricks came out with their product, and you know people came up to me all the time at the booth and would say things like, "Why would I use Databricks? Right? Like, why would I pay for this when I can run my own Spark cluster?" And I used to think, "Yeah, you know that's right, that's right." And then, you know, slowly I would be speaking to these crowds like throughout the years and I'd ask, hey, who here uses Databricks? And I would see more and more hands going up, right? Like who here uses Snowflake? More and more hands going up. And the whole time I'm thinking, these are probably the same people that had come to me a couple years ago and were like, this is silly. I can run my own cluster. But like very quickly, now you're running your own Spark cluster. Now you're running your own Kafka cluster. Now you're running your own Elasticsearch cluster. And 
you know, one thing I realized while building my startup was I was spending all of my time, you know, just trying to get GPUs to work with Kubernetes, just trying to get my YAML, you know, straightened out and, and keep my services running and, you know, get my Elasticsearch cluster, get, get my Grafana, you know, and like Prometheus running. And I was always running out of disk and I was always, you know, so these days you don't really have to do that. So maybe it's worth the extra 10 cents, you know, per uh, like compute hour or like whatever they charge these days. Right. So it really comes down to at like this point in my career, I really value my time and I like to actually focus on the business problem. And I wasn't always like that. I always liked the sort of platform challenges, systems challenges, but as you get more mature, you know, like a little more experienced and see more business problems and realize that's where the real value is. So maybe it is worth it. You've written a book about machine learning on AWS. Give me the synopsis of the book. Yeah. So it really... The value prop for this particular book is an end-to-end sort of complete picture. This is why we had to wait for uh, like December 2020, reInvent 2020, to get SageMaker pipelines in there, to get you know all the pieces under one uh, like roof, if you will. So they're all under SageMaker. It's you know getting data in and then transforming those features and training a model. And of course, we chose natural language processing. BERT was you know, just starting to become very popular when we were starting to write the book. We use a library called Hugging Face, Transformers, which is a close partner of like AWS. And we then deploy the model. We you know, tune the model in production. And then we decided to add in streaming. So we use Kinesis, we use Kafka, we show many different pipeline options. So we show how to use the new managed uh, like Airflow, the new managed Kafka, and yes, all the uh, like different pipeline options and streaming options. So the book ended up being 500 pages. We were only supposed to write, I think, uh, maybe 300. But yeah, working with the O'Reilly folks was really fun. They, they're a great group of people, have a very, very large network, and really helped us promote the book and uh, build a uh, super high quality book. Now that you have gone very deep at, I guess you were at Netflix, right? Is that, that, that was the pancake stack story, right? Yeah. Yeah. We used everything there. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Netflix, they really were pioneers in cloud-based data engineering in so many ways, you know, spinning up their own streaming systems, Mantis, I think, I think I did a show on Mantis a while ago. Uh, I don't even remember what that does. Lots of random things got built because they didn't have this stuff productized, which today it is. You can go on AWS and you have all the pieces in place. You've hinted at this already, that basically, if you're building with well-designed abstractions that abstract away running out of disk and like that, that kind of thing, the thing that you should basically never encounter as somebody, if you're not working at AWS, you should never encounter running out of disk if you're you know, not totally cost sensitive. How does building in such an unconstrained way in the world of machine learning or data science, I should say, your, your book is data science on AWS, not machine learning on AWS, I misspoke. But if I'm building a data science application in modern AWS, not Netflix circa 2015, 2016, whenever you were building PancakeStack, if we're talking five years later, how does the experience compare? 
Yeah, and I still maintain uh, good connections there. You know, they, things have like evolved quite a lot, specifically around pipelines. They have a project, I believe it's called Metaflow, uh, Netflix Metaflow. And the data challenges are still there. Data engineering challenges are, are so they still have, as far as I know anyway, you know, forks of Presto, you know, different sort of optimized variants of, you know, Kafka, things like that, that, that work at the specific Netflix scale, right? And some of those patches just don't ever make it in. Either they don't really align with the master roadmap for these projects or, but I think, you know, to get back to your question, the, the, so there's always data challenges and those don't change. And, and as far as I know, there's still quite a lot of different systems at play there, right? There's, there's uh, Presto, there's Spark, there's, you know, yes, all kinds of, of like Hive meta stores that they're using. They use EMR quite a bit. And in terms of data science, you know, because so I specifically work with uh so like quite a lot of startups who just want to get uh, their models out, right? And they don't necessarily want to have to string together EMR with a bunch of other services. All they want is to point SageMaker to their data and then derive their uh, models from there and then serve those models. But then they start to get to the point where they are seeing quite a lot of data and now they enter with these same data challenges and then yeah, they end up having to like integrate all these. So one of the things I've been, yes, I've been working with the uh, engineering teams at like AWS is trying to merge more of EMR with SageMaker, right? Or find a nice balance there. There's right now there's sort of separate EMR and then there's SageMaker and we're starting to see some of those worlds come together. And, you know, there's all kinds of like cross collaboration, right? Like PMs between these teams. Yeah. Cause you worked over at like AWS, so you know how the like PM org works. So they basically have, you know, folks on SageMaker talking to the EMR team. They have folks on like EMR talking to SageMaker. So, so Netflix is a very special case. They have tons of data. They have, you know, fast moving data. They have their own requirements. And like oftentimes they're, you know, building patches directly with these project owners at like Confluent and at like Databricks and those kind of places. So in more detail, how much time am I saving? If I go from this pancake stack world, because I, I remember doing shows early on in, you know, when I was starting to do this podcast and data engineering sounded miserable. It just sounded completely miserable. P- plumbing. I remember talking to, to like Max Buchamine when he was from, from Airbnb, you know, he had, he had worked at Facebook and it just, you know, I've talked to people who, who did the early Hadoop stuff at Facebook and just sounds so miserable. And I, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a bead on how much of that has been cleaned up. How much, of, how much are you still having to do like if you move to AWS, are you just moving the problem or are you, are you, is the time to market actually getting like significantly better? Yeah. So at uh, reInvent 2020, there was a feature or service that was released called SageMaker Data Wrangler. And so Data Wrangler really to me is kind of the closest thing to that like uh, drag and drop, you know, sort of thing, which not all of us buy into, you know, I'm a little skeptical of like drag and drop. But what it's doing behind the scenes is very cool. It's actually launching little mini Spark jobs to do these transformations. And so all you do is specify, 
you know, here's my data in S3, it's of uh, CSV type or, you know, TSV, Parquet, whatever. And then from there, I can make my transformations. I could save that. It's called a .flow file. So from that standpoint, you know, things become a little bit more communicable to your, you know, teammates. You're not passing around a whole bunch of bash scripts and, you know, Python uh, files, R files, you know, all kinds of weird things that like Max always talks about. I know Max. So Data Wrangler actually supports, you know, all of Spark. And once you realize that it's Spark behind the covers and you're not managing those Spark clusters, these are serverless Spark clusters. So you don't even think about like scaling these things up. They just auto scale for you. And so you're paying just for the time that you're actually running those queries. And from that standpoint, you know, much, much easier to code, much, much easier. And the super cool thing about Data Wrangler that like not a lot of people uh, like talk about is I can actually click export and export the, a big, you know, Python file if I really want to have Python or if I want to move this to another team or if I want to move away from SageMaker Data Wrangler, if you want. And I can actually then, you know, commit that code into GitHub, and then I could use it outside of, of like Sage, of uh, like SageMaker. Yep. I have just finished a book of my own, and I know that writing a book is an arduous process. Can you take me through the various points in the torture chamber of book writing? <laughs> yeah, which book did you write? Yes, I missed that. It, well, it's actually not even out yet. It comes out July 6th. It's called Move Fast, How Facebook Builds Software. Excellent. Oh, awesome. Yeah, does that come from all of your like interactions with with the Facebook folks? Well, so uh, so Pete Pete and Nick from Facebook, well, they had they had worked at Facebook. Yeah. Pete yeah. Hunt and Nick Schrock. Schrock, yep. And they said I should do a, a book about Facebook. And so it took like two and a half years. And <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. Yes. Are you self-published? We publish on, on our own imprint. It's published through Software Daily. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think, you know, someone like you is in a very unique situation because you do have such a large network. You do have a platform to, you know, share the book. We chose the O'Reilly folks. We had been doing, you know, online trainings with them. I've been submitting book proposals, honestly, for eight years. Yeah. So before they... Yeah, what, what was your first? Oh, man, it was probably a Spark book, you know, because I've been poking around with Spark since 2013. But not being an expert uh, necessarily at the time, you know, Databricks was the main expert. So, yeah, so they were getting all the book deals. Holden Corral, right, like one of my friends uh, lives in uh, like San Francisco with us. She was able to get in sort of early on that, that whole uh, book situation and then got hooked up with the O'Reilly folks. Yeah, you know, man, it's a long process. I would suggest co-author, which it sounds like you uh, do have a co-author, right? Yeah, those other two guys. No, not, not really. I mean, at the oh, beginning, we were, we were, we were, we, <laughs> at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning, we were, uh, we were thinking, um, uh, oh yeah, um, you know, you know, you guys are my co-authors. In the meantime, like Pete is getting his company acquired by Twitter, and he's going to be the head of health at Twitter. Nick is getting Dagster online, which became Elemental. Elemental. So like, you know, Nick, Nick is running a series A company. Pete is basically enforcing health and Twitter. And and I'm like, Hey guys, do you have uh, you have 15 minutes today to talk about the book? And they're like, no, we actually don't. And so yeah, never write a book. 
never write a book and never write a book by yourself. Sure. Yeah. Co-author is key. You know, some, it really boils down to why are you writing the book? You know, and some folks certainly don't do it for the money. There's, you know, zero money in this. So the reason Ancha and I, so she's based out of Germany. And so we got together, we both joined AWS around the same time. We both knew each other from prior to AWS. So there was, you know, some, some friendship there. So we weren't going in blind. If you try to do it alone, as I'm sure you found it, you can oftentimes get discouraged. You wonder why are you doing this? What's the value? You know, things, especially talking about SageMaker and, you know, the sort of AI ML story at like Amazon or sorry, at like AWS, things were were changing. I mean, even on a, you know, as a week by week. So fortunately, I was able to hop on to the status like email lists. And so I knew what the PMs were working on. This is, you know, not something that, right, like an outsider outside of the like AWS firewall has access to. So it was very, very difficult to stay on top of things. And on top of it, you know, we were also doing our daily jobs. We weren't traveling as much during 2020. So that was nice. We were always, you know, at our laptops. Yeah, we always had access to the cloud. And we were able to really explore you know, how to build an end-to-end. And that that was what we found sort of missing from public knowledge. And, you know, part of it was because the end-to-end story just simply wasn't there. And then part of it was, it's not often clear, you know, where one product begins or one feature begins and then one feature ends and, you know, how to, to uh, like pull them all together. But yeah, I would say, you know, I'm a morning uh, writing kind of person. So I, would write while I was fresh and had, you know, seven cups of coffee in me. Yeah, before Polk Street would get too crowded with, you know, tons of people watching and cars and trucks delivering things. So that was my key. So you like Polk Street, uh, um, like what, what, what neighborhood are we talking? Yeah, so I'm in uh, Polk Gulch, it's called. Yeah, so basically part that of that neighborhood has a lot of character. I used to live in Japantown. Yeah, I thought you were still in Japantown. Where are you? I'm not, not in Japantown anymore. Now I'm uh, in a, uh, a a similar. Well, actually, it's a, I don't want to say on air, but it's a it's a area with uh, just just uh, you know just as much character. But yeah, I mean, I loved being in Japantown, and the uh, the you're adjacent to so many characteristic elements of of San Francisco. You got Fillmore over there. You yeah, got like the yeah. mu- the music scene. It's uh, you have a lot of his- uh, history there. But yeah, a lot of creative energy. You just feel the creative energy. If you wake up in the morning, you walk to one of these random coffee shops around Polk Street, as you said, you just feel the creative energy. Do you write on your phone? Do you write on your smartphone? You write the book on your smartphone at all? No. Or you bring your laptop? Yeah, I always bring my laptop. I mean, I bring it to, you know, the, yeah, the Mexican place. I yeah, bring it to the coffee shop. So, which is very unique to San Francisco. That's not a normal thing to do in, in like the whole rest of the world. But yeah, being on a laptop at a at a coffee shop is like totally normal. And the cool thing is, you know, depending on what stickers you have on your laptop, I have a TensorFlow sticker, I have an AWS sticker. You know, people talk to you. Oh yeah, do you know Kubernetes? Oh yeah, yeah, I do know Kubernetes. And then they just randomly ask you a question and, you know, I can help them if possible. So, you know, people collaborate like that. The other tip... So besides co-author for sure is always think about that target audience. 
And that was one of the hardest things was with a book this big covering that many topics, we really needed to nail down, you know, is this a data scientist? Is this an ML ops person? Is this, you know, someone that, that knows SQL? I mean, there were conversations, me and, and like my co-author and uh, the O'Reilly folks were like, wait a minute, now you're introducing some, some SQL statements. And so there's a lot of, of like, right, like prerequisites that, that we kept either tacking on or, you know, shaving off. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things. And then use Google Docs, too, or some sort of Google collaborative. Doc. Google Docs is so good. I mean, look, I'm all for Notion, but Google Docs is great. Did you have trouble getting the book down to a reasonable size? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, we there was a miscalculation. And yeah, this is kind of a funny story where our editor had not ever used Google Docs for this kind of thing. And so he... He had kind of a, you know, back of the envelope, like calculation. So we would provide him, I don't know, 700 pages of Google Docs. Each chapter was its own Google Docs. So it wasn't, you know, one gigantic thing. And he would say, you are only at 300 pages when really we were at 600 pages. So he was a complete, yeah. And so we kept, you know, writing more and more thinking that because it's totally different on print or in Adobe, you know, in like PDF, yeah, final form. And then... You know, the O'Reilly folks have a very, very rigorous review process, and they were insistent that we didn't just use AWS people. And so I really like that, too. So, like, we brought in Sean Owen from Databricks, you know, formerly Cloudera, head of data science. We, you know, I I just pulled on all of our network, you know, Ted Dunning from uh, MapR, now now Hewlett-Packard. So these folks that have been with me and, you know, I've helped to review their books and they helped to review... Yes, our book. And yeah, that's an invaluable part of, of getting hooked up with a publisher is they have a lot of previous authors and a lot of people I really respected. And then I would say one more tip is to keep is to keep reading. So while you're writing, it's frustrating to actually pick up a book and start to read somebody else's stuff. But really that that kept me moving forward because and I mean, like right up to the very final draft, I was adding stuff that was based or, you know, was sort of stimulated by something I had read in, you know, someone else's book and yeah, grabbed a sample and then like changed it to be our like use case where we were building this like text classifier with Bert and so really just keep reading right up to the time when you actually publish. But it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And yeah, I got a few extra gray hairs. I'm not sure if you can see them here. I, I shaved some of them off for you. Yeah, so that my like microphone wouldn't touch my beard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, I've built failed companies. I've built failed projects. I've built failed, all kinds of failed things. Writing a book is probably the hardest. It's been the hardest for me. Especially like I, I, so for me, my editing process, I finished the first draft. I have an editor. I use this company called Scribe Media, which I heavily endorse to anybody that wants to write a book. Scribe Media is awesome. But they gave me an editor who was really good. His name was Hal Clifford. And I wrote the first version of the book. I'm like, oh God, I'm done. Okay. That's great. And he, and he just gives it back to me. and It's just read everywhere. It's tore up. Yeah. And it was just like, it was basically like, you need to rewrite this entire thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, oh, and then one other thing, we actually started with images and, you know, figures. So we were in, you know, Google Slides. We started off using PowerPoint and, you know, couldn't figure out the whole collaboration situation there. So we ended up just switching over to Google Slides, but kind of storybooking it 
or you know storyboarding it yeah really helped us go from from chapter to chapter and by the end of it we had written and rewritten it yeah probably two or three times but those figures really helped us out and we ended up with almost 500 figures which you know is a 500 page book on its own so we had to go through and actually cut figures and put more into words but yeah so is your book selling is it is it doing okay yeah, we're we're number one new release in computer engineering right now. It's not even about computer engineering. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know. <laughs> yeah, we were number one in like cloud computing, which I was pretty uh, like, happy <laughs> That's with. That's awesome. That's I know. <laughs> hey, man, well deserved. I mean, I look at data science on AWS. That seems like a a very widely needed topic of advice. Yeah, and you know, with O'Reilly, you have to figure out their proposal process. And yeah, so living in San Francisco, I have the advantage of, you know, just kind of popping into these conferences. And I actually ran into one of the like editors, the acquisition editors, Jessica Haberman, and she was doing a talk on how to write, right, like the effective proposal to get your book, you know, in. And so I sat there, took notes, and realized when you're proposing a book, it's, it's very similar to doing a pitch deck. And because I had just gone through all that process with my startup, you know, I knew that I had to show value prop. I had to talk about total addressable market. I had to talk about the team. I had to say who, who I was, why I was an expert in this area. Yeah, talk about, right, like my co-author. And you really had to break down the market and, you know, so something that I'm picking up on here is, yeah, so you stated that that this really is kind of the perfect time. You know, people do want to know how to do data science. And it's a very, very broad topic. And we had lots of places to go. But, like, we knew that we wanted streaming in there. We knew that we had to cover security. You know, yes, any book on a like cloud provider has to talk about security. So we have an entire chapter dedicated to that. We tried to make it not very boring, so we showed a lot of good examples and yeah, sort of how it it all fits in. But yeah, yeah, building a solid proposal and yeah, so we give permission to the O'Reilly folks to actually use that proposal as a template for new authors. And so if you reach out to Jessica Haberman or you know reach out to me, I can get you in touch with with her. Yeah, she's super awesome. How about O'Reilly? What a timeless brand. Yeah, you know, it was pretty obvious going with them. You know, mainly they have, I don't know, two and a half million reach or something crazy. I read from like all publishers, Pact, yes, O'Reilly, like Manning, all of them. But that was the one we were really hoping for. And it's the one I had the strongest connections to. So, yeah. And, you know, funny story. uh, We had no control over the duck on the book. They just kind of proposed it to us and said, well, here's the duck. So... Yeah, so that's the signed copy, right? Did I send you the signed copy? You did, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So that's actually traveled through Germany, and uh, <laughs> yeah. So that Why did it go through Germany. Oh, my co-author. Oh, okay, great. Oh, wow. Okay, thank you. Thank yeah. You, so that you. thing's it's like flat Stanley. It's been across the world. So. <laughs> what's your What's your co-author's background? Just give a give her a shout out. Yeah, yeah, Ancha Barth. So she's the same role as me, based in the European region. Comes from MapR. Uh, a lot of big data stuff, worked very closely with uh, Ted Dunning. Yeah, Ted was her, her mentor at uh, MapR. And yeah, we have a quote in there from, from Ted, I believe. And uh, Jeff Barr gave us a quote, which was, yeah, super awesome. 
Uh, well, she's gonna have to come on the show also because we're I don't we're we're like most of the way through and we're not even like talking about data science and AWS. I'm gonna miss O'Reilly conferences. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, yeah. What a sad victim of the pandemic. Yeah. How many life changing relationships did you did you form at O'Reilly conferences? Yeah. And the food was good. <laughs> the food was good. The food was good, and the food was good. <laughs> not as good as QCon. Oh yeah, QCon for um, yeah. Maybe maybe a little bit better than reInvent. <laughs> yeah, reInvent, reinvent the coffee. <laughs> yeah, I just want the coffee. Reinvent is the AWS of food. A- absolutely. You get you get what you pay for. <laughs> um, yeah, pay as you go. <laughs> But yeah, it, why do you think, from a business standpoint, why did they kill off the conference business? I mean, they, they had to know this is going to come back eventually. Is it just because you think they'll bring it back? Is it like uh, is it like Jay Z announcing the end of his career? <laughs> yeah, you know, and we actually talked about that before we started writing. We were like, oh man, we're going to write this whole book and not be able to do an in person book signing. Yeah, I mean, do you remember those? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, during lunches and stuff, you can stand in line for like can four you hours. Do, is there a virtual book signing platform yet? Can we do that? I know. You want to start? Let's start that right now. Let's that's do a it. Great, that's a great indie hacker business. <laughs> online, spin up an online book signing. Yeah. $5.99, one-time payment. Totally. Yeah, subscription. Yeah, right, like monthly subscription, and then we just bring on 10 authors or whatever. Yeah, my personal feeling, and I don't know anything more than you do, is that they have to bring it back. You know, I mean, it it was such a, a vital part. And I imagine that they didn't make that much money off of those. I mean, just, you know, speaking, because I'm sure they were very expensive, right? Well, so, okay, so I interviewed Tim O'Reilly one time, and I was doing the whole um, brain dump thing, you know, like in Silicon Valley, where uh, they bring they bring the founders in and, like, have them whiteboard everything about the company while flattering them. What I was doing, I mean, I love Tim O'Reilly, and I love what he's built, and it's, like, totally aspirational for me. And so I was like, okay, so you basically started with conferences, and then you did books, or wait, it was books first. Books, conferences, e-learning. He said that books was pretty profitable. Conferences were way more profitable than that. Oh, and were e-learning, they? yeah. And e-learning is way more profitable than that. Interesting. Yeah, and like we've done some of their their online training. We have to, I guess, yeah, probably re-engage with them there. Yeah, so recently Ancha actually posted their super stream. Yeah, have you seen any of their their online super stream stuff? No, what is that? It's basically the equivalent of, you know, Strata, their their O'Reilly AI conference, but it's like totally online. And, you know, one of the benefits of course is you get people from from all over the world and, you know, don't have to find a hotel down in San Jose, which was even hard for me, right? Like living up in San Francisco, I would try to get a hotel down there and they were all, you know, 700 dollars and it kind of opens it up too to a lot of more speakers than than they normally could get, right? People that can't take off three days or you know two days of of work, but they can just pop in for a half hour, give a talk, and then answer questions and and leave. But yeah, they do them. I think they have like a data one. They have yeah an AI one. But I really wish that they would bring them back. Fortunately, they were able to to repurpose quite a lot of those people, so they didn't have to you know lay off too many people from my understanding because I still see a lot of the same same faces but more like the online side or the marketing side yeah great group of people 
So the online conference experience, I've never done one of these online conferences. You do get a lot out of it? Do you get a lot out of it relative to the in-person conferences? You know, they're a bit awkward, right? I've seen some of these these platforms. I don't know the uh, specific platform names where they have Hop these. In. Hopin's the big one. Yeah, yeah, Hopin. I don't think that's the one that... Yeah, there was one where they had this kind of virtual lunchroom thing and you would you would drag yourself over and I like I couldn't even figure out how to do it. I just wanted to like talk to people even in a Zoom room or something like that, but yeah, and I do find myself skipping talks that I would normally if I was dedicated in that space, you know, for those those two days, like I would definitely go to these talks, but if I'm if there's like the whole switching theory if i can switch off and answer 10 emails during that that same half hour but yeah i miss the in person okay anyway if you think about data science on aws from let's say the platonic ideal let's say you're building a company actually let's say you've got netflix okay let's say you you've built netflix and you've built it without data engineering in mind so you've built basically awesome video streaming service that everybody loves. You've got the flywheel spinning, you've got cash coming in, and you are the first person on the data engineering team. You get to basically take all the production data, all the telemetry, let's imagine you have all the all the exhaust data that you could ever want, and you're building the best data pipeline and machine learning and data science workflow set possible. What does that look like? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, there's this really cool uh, segments of data engineering or that the data engineering pipeline called Feature Store, right? So that's something that, and I don't know if you've had any segments so far. Have you had any segments on on Feature Store? Or is that is that an AWS product, or do you just mean abstractly the idea of a Feature Store? It's both. Yeah. So there is a concept called Feature Store, and then yeah, SageMaker has SageMaker so, Feature Store. So this is like what Michelangelo does, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, we did Michelangelo. Yeah, and Mike Dub also, who yeah lives in San Francisco, started a company called Tecton that you know really really focuses on that. So. And I speak with him, yeah, maybe once every few months or so. He's really, really scaling that company out. It's backed by Andreessen, you know, backed by, um, I think, Sequoia also. So, yeah, those guys are are uh, kicking butt. It's called Tecton.ai. And so SageMaker also has something called Feature Store. So the reason I bring that up is once you... So there's raw data, right? Then there's transformed uh, like features. And what you're trying to do is, you know, build up these embeddings is the uh, classic term for it. Yes, anything can, you know, really be an embedding. You're just going from from one space, from one vector space to another vector space, essentially. You know, taking raw data, raw text, uh, let's say product reviews, right? You know, customer reviews, and then converting those into BERT vectors. And what you want to do is is like just do that once, and so when you ask about the most perfect data pipeline, right, you want things like traceability, you want, there's reasons now that you might need to actually take data out. So there's GDPR and all those familiar things where we might actually have to remove data even from our trained model. So at some point, it's not good enough to just delete the rows of a user from your database, right? Like you also have to delete or modify any and all models that have been trained with 
that user's data. This is a very, very difficult problem. It's not very easily solved. But the ability to trace and say this set of you know, 15 or 500 models used that single person's data, we have to now pull it out and then retrain and start from that particular point in time, right? And then retrain. And so Feature Stores gives you that ability, right? Where if you break it down, Feature Store is a, you know, it's database tables, but has this notion of time, right? That these features were actually ingested. And you can share these features just like you can share, right? So any database. So before SageMaker Feature Store, people built these on their own and, you know, they were sort of bespoke. But yeah, the folks over at Tekton and then the SageMaker Feature Store really uh, like tackle this. It's a really, really good topic. You should, yeah, pull someone in from, from Tekton or yeah, somewhere to discuss this. That's really interesting to hear that basically the entry point into what you would consider a sensible data engineering data science stack is this feature store. Why is that, of all the things in the pancake stack, why is the feature store the best pancake? Yeah, the best layer. Well, you can reuse, right? So these oftentimes are very complex transformations. You know, going from raw text to this... Uh, vocabulary that BERT has has learned, right? You know, BERT has been trained on millions and millions of documents. And BERT has a notion of, right, like human language. And trying to get, you know, natural language text into these, you know, BERT vectors could take many days, you know, yeah, depending on like how much compute you have, how much data you have, all that stuff. So, you really only want to do that once or very few times and just sort of incrementally, you know. And so from that point, right, like you could also then share not only with your teammates, but yeah, so you could use those same features that have been transformed, those 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 same BERT vectors, when you're actually making predictions. Yeah, so otherwise you're making this like transformation twice. So you would have to do it once during training, which, you know, could take a few days, huge, huge batch job to then create those vectors. And then when you go to actually make predictions, right, like you would then have to retransform that same text into that, that same BERT vector space. And so, yeah, really there's a lot of sort of operational, like cost savings going on there. That's Tekton's, you know, main value prop is they have lots and lots of cool features, but they also save you quite a lot of time. And yeah, have a really good uh, like value prop. Okay, well, unfortunately, we got to get going, but I'd love to keep talking to you. We should do another show. I'd love to. Do, we should do one in person, maybe in a few months. I think we should just like do a like a long like the history of data engineering, like the six. What is the six year history of data engineering, and why is it the way that it is today? But I'd also love to do a show that actually covers uh, AWS in a little more detail. If Antio wants to come on. But sorry to cut it short, man. I'd, I'd love to talk longer. Yeah, man, no problem. Yes, always good to see you, Jeff. You too, uh, in person soon. For sure. <laughs>